This is The Advisory Board with Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. I'm Alan Jones and you're listening to The Advisory Board. Whether you're just starting out or figuring out your next stage of growth, The Advisory Board is here to lend a helping hand. Because we've been there before and helped thousands of founders, CEOs and organisations all over the world take their lives and their businesses to the next level. I'm Alan Jones. And I'm Megan Flamer. Each week we take on the real issues from entrepreneurs and business people like you and we show you how to win the day with kindness and a little tough love. Make sure you send us your questions or write to us about your problems. You can reach us at hello at disrupt.radio. You can find us on Instagram or on LinkedIn. This is The Advisory Board with Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. Not that Alan Jones. I don't know if you have ever had a lemonade stand as a child Hmm. or if you've ever tried to, like, make some cakes in your street when you Hmm. were young. You know, when we think about entrepreneurial spirit and it's starting really young, Al, how did it begin for you? Oh, well, look, reluctantly. Um, But I remember first hearing the word entrepreneur at a family barbecue um, with with a, a large family around me and I was asking my dad what my uncles do um, because this was such a long time ago um, all, all of all of my aunties were housewives and mothers they didn't have careers right and going through through you know six or so uncles and I got to Uncle George and I said dad what does Uncle George do and he said dad your Uncle George is an entrepreneur and I oh. said oh I haven't heard that word before what does that mean and my dad said I swear to God he said that means he doesn't have a proper job oh <laughs> I love that this is where you've gone <laughs> you're like that sounds great thought, to me okay, I'm gonna leave entrepreneurship alone then <laughs> And, 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 you know, I could write pretty words um, when I was young. So then I went into, into editorial. And those in the glory days of media when, when there was the church and the state, you know, where, where the church was the editorial people and the state were the salespeople and never the two would, would come together. And if they did, then the editorial people would get really upset about them. Yeah. But it wasn't until later, until I was in tech, that I realized that actually for, for most tech startup founders, myself included, we start out thinking that this is all, all about building great products that our customers will love. And then at some point in the process, we realized, actually, this is really mostly about sales and marketing. Yeah. And, and you don't <laughs> succeed without the sales and the marketing. These are useful skills. Definitely. I mean, everything everything is persuasion, right? Everything is persuading somebody to stop doing what they're currently doing and consider doing something else. And some of the time that's buying your product. How about you? When, when did your entrepreneurship journey start? Do you know, I can remember being one of the younger kids in a in a gang, you know, oh, yeah. inner city Perth. You'll get on your BMXs. Yeah, <laughs> where we were building these little cute kind of almost like fairy houses and then taking them, like <laughs> shopping them around the streets. So we're getting moss and little bits and pieces and flowers and putting them sea together shells. as these, yeah, like cute little this arrangements. Is a tough gang. Yeah, <laughs> we, were t- we were totally, we were rough as the streets. Um, but yeah, so we were, we were doing that and there was a group of about five of us. My sister was one of them. And we went around and we got little bits of money, you know, from various people in the street. Mm-hmm. And when we got to the end of the day and everything, we'd sold all of the houses and one of, you know, we were kind of figuring out how to divide it up. And I said, as I think I was like five or six years old, I was like, oh, I'll just just have whatever's left over. (laughs) And that was my first entrepreneurial lesson. (laughs) Dumb, dumb. I think I got like five cents. I think everyone else, you know, made some money out of it and then I only got five cents. And my mum got quite angry because I was upset then. And I went back home and my sister, you know, was like, well, that's what she said she wanted. Dumbass. And now, yeah. some 
30-something years later, I am finally learning that uh, it's, not a, it's not a good way to do business. That yeah. You should be upfront. Yeah. You should be clear. You should ask for what you want. Think you know, a number and double it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's like one of the first times that I had that thought of like, oh, money's really unfair or like sales cool. and selling, like that kind of idea that it's, yeah. that it's not fair. It's not fair. It's scary. It's scary. It can know, be. Because often you're, you're very closely associated. Your own identity and your self-worth is tied up in the thing that you're trying yeah. to sell to people. And when they say no, that you, or even just the fear of them saying no or laughing at what you're proposing or being outraged, you know, just the fear of that can be enough to put you off going and talking to customers. Yes. And we have spoken before, you are not... Yeah. Your company, you are not your product. You are a separate yeah. person and identity and being, and it still can feel that way. They're oh, yeah. saying no to me. They're rejecting me. Well, I think today's letter yeah. <laughs> is definitely looking at rejection and and also, you know, so much of what you were saying before, sales and marketing is so much of what you need to be able to be great at, mm. especially when you've got a tiny team. Dear Advisory Board, we're a team of three with an education platform and we've been pretty good with our growth in our first year. I now think that maybe we just got lucky with our early sales because while we're all making twice as many calls and doing loads of demos, we are just not converting sales. Add to that, we're struggling to service the customers that we have because we're so desperately chasing new business. How do we build and maintain a sales pipeline? And probably most importantly, how the F do we convert people to paying customers? We've abolished our free offerings, but even if all our current customers re-sign with us, we're going to be in trouble by the end of the year unless we start signing deals. Help (laughs) from always be closing. Thank you. Always be closing. That's a great letter. There's a lot of transparency and openness there, isn't there? I feel for them. Yeah. Because I can see, even just from a short letter, you can see that they're doing so many of the right things. Yeah. You know, they're having the conversations. They're doing demos. I like that they've abolished the free offerings. You know, that Definitely. Just, it costs you so much of your time and energy. And, you know, we'll talk probably a bit more about, you know, cost per unit and mm-hmm. cost per time. Mm-hmm. But with a team of three, mm-hmm. you just... It's, it's so tricky to try and divide out who is in charge of what mm. and how do you manage all of those pieces for like, you know, is there one person who's better at doing the sales part, you know, actually getting out there and talking to the customer? Mm. How do you nurture them over the time? Mm. How do you pull all those pieces together? Mm. It's tricky. Big ask, big ask. And, and you know, probably the, the, the first place to start is, is open communication between the three of you. Right. There's probably already some specialization in the team. There's probably somebody who's leaning more heavily into one thing and not into others. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, different kinds of customers need to hear from different kinds of salespeople and, and be reached out to on different marketing channels. And so, you know, even if, if nobody in the team considers themselves a gun salesperson, um, everybody needs to learn, right? Because a team of three is three times as effective at sales if there are three of you out there on the streets knocking on doors. Yeah, that's true. I really like what you said as well about, you know, being a certain type of person appealing because I know with an education platform, for example, like teachers love teachers, Mm. you know, like Mm. I think they share each other's pain inherently as well. Mm. And so I don't, I don't quite know exactly your niche here, always be closing. But, you know, when we are looking at an education platform, like if one of you is a teacher, you might be the person to go and talk to a a Mm. school or to other teachers and, um, Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's really important to try and 
steer the right people to the right conversations. Yeah. Emily and Elaine and I were out there last night, you know, in Richmond, um, inviting a bunch of people along to, to, you know, hear about the money that we're raising. And, and uh, you know, we've got about 20, 25 people there along to that. And, you know, it's a process of looking at who we have rsvp to that event beforehand and going through between the three of us and saying, okay, when this person walks in, I'm going to, I'm going to say, please excuse me for a moment to the people I'm talking to because that's, that's... You were that organised. That's my lead. Well, we try to be. You were like targeting yeah, we people as they walk in the door. Yeah, yeah. I know you like a dirty martini. <laughs> let me let me sort you out, Jason. <laughs> but yeah. then early in that process, like when, you know, when I've, you know, when I've got my, my lead in and made them welcome, got them a drink and all that, yeah. then there needs to be the right moment for me to introduce them to Emily and to Elaine and for Emily's contacts and Elaine's contacts to do that same thing so that each of those people considering investing in us and backing us get feel like they know all three of us because we're a team. That's good. That's very good. Mm. Well, look, I think we, you know, I, I like what you're saying and I think we really need to pull in yes. a really big gun expert. here. Yeah, so... Mm. Phil Hayes St. Clair is a girl dad first, serial entrepreneur, educator, and today he is a co-founder and CEO at Drop Bio Health, the at-home healthcare technology company. They specialise in blood home testing, home blood testing, I should say, um, and they're moving the needle on fertility and women's health. Full disclosure, I am an advisor with Drop Bio as well, so, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, Phil has built partnerships, loads of them, and that's why he's also a host of podcasts and programs with Partnership Plus, which connects the dots to help create, nurture, and grow business partnerships. So I think a perfect person to help with Always Be Closing. Phil, I feel like closing deals is something that you have done a lot of as a serial founder. What is the secret? Well, hello. I just, I mean, two of my favourite people. Um, I love I loved hearing that reflection on on what was going on. I, sales is important, and Alan, you're right. You know, everyone's got to be doing it at some point. But I think there's also horses for courses here as well. Where when I think about if I need to be talking a language to people I actually natively don't have, I could learn that, or I could go and find somebody who could maybe one day a week uh, do a lot of that early work to identify the prospects, um, be able to speak the education language. This person might have been a great salesperson or business development person in a large technology OEM that was selling into education once before, who has maybe now since retired, um, is looking for something to do inside startup, is happy to work one day a week, um, also happy to pull out a Rolodex uh, and to help you fill the top of the funnel. So, you know, we in small businesses and companies that are growing, you're always doing at least two jobs and adding one of sales, particularly if you're not really a salesperson at heart, um, can just feel like another three jobs that you just added to the top of your list. Mm-hmm. So I'm always, I value time very, very highly. And so whenever I think about how could I short circuit that, I still want to be in the, ro- in, in the room because I love the thrill of the chase, the closing of the deal, the, the feeling that we're actually about to make an impact both in our company and outside. But, you know, if you can find that one salesperson who can give you a little bit of time every week because it's B2B, those sales cycles are going to take time. So it's all about filling the top of the funnel, knowing who you've spoken to, you know, really targeting them well um, and building a, a basis of, of trust and relationship. And I love they've taken out the free tier because trial upon trial upon trial upon trial leads nowhere except for a massive time sink. Um, and people have to value what you've got, right? So the intention really is um, have somebody who can help accelerate all that. And also don't be afraid to ask the question, 
what will it take for you and me to close a deal? Right. So they might have budget constraints. They might have a bunch of things and your pricing tier might be good from assumptions of yesteryear, but don't be afraid to sort of say, look, talk to me. How do, how do we sort of make a deal happen here? Um, and sometimes you'll be surprised about what their budget is and you just didn't ask the question early enough. So you didn't know how to pitch it. So I think there's some really fundamental things and those really seasoned sales and business development folks, they can give you those tips as well. There's something really great about that transparency in the conversation as well, isn't there? Like I, I remember uh, someone telling me that it takes around seven touches before a sale goes through. And it's something I definitely learned in the US as opposed to Australia, because I noticed with founders here, they'll be like, I sent them an email and they never wrote me back. So that prospect is dead forever. Whereas in America, I just, you know, we'd literally talk to people where they'd say, yeah, like we went to their office and we talked to them and we just got really excited about the product because we are really excited about the product. And so, you know, I think there's that gap between that sort of that selling mindset and you mentioned like, you know, a salesperson at heart, what qualities do people need to develop? Because as you heard in, in the, the fairy kingdom sales cycle, I didn't fare very well, but now I sell a lot of things and I create partnerships. Like what's, how do you develop that? Are you inherently born a salesperson? Look, I don't think people are, I think you can be a little bit extroverted, a little bit introverted, but you've just got to be interested in the in the mountain that other person's trying to move, right? In education, you know, we're trying to teach kids and adults a bunch of new skills to say current and feel interested and feel like they can be empowered. Like that's that's epic, right? So if you are fully invested in the idea of not selling the the thing, the widget, but actually going, well, actually, you know, for the children that will benefit from this, the teachers that will benefit this, um, for the generation that will benefit from this new thing that will move the needle on X and Y, then it's very difficult when you get in front of somebody not to have that sort of ooze into the conversation. And it's really about collapsing that time to trust, right? Because what you're trying to do is create the point of view that I'm not, yes, I'm trying to sell you something. And yes, there is a deal to be done here. I'm sure there is, but I'm actually trying to create an alliance because in a B2B context, we're trying to be with you for at least four to five years, mm. right? So let's just build towards it. That's kind of the deal. If I was trying to sell you a $15 widget, then we're, we're in a fundamentally different place and we should think about just selling on Facebook. But when you're doing this kind of work, it's really important just to sort of think, why did these people end up going into this role? And they might actually hate their job, right? Like they might be the administrative face of what you're trying to sell into. If that's the case, you're hitting against that. The question to ask that person is, look, could we catch up with the people who'll be using this and then have that conversation? Because once you've gotten across that sort of gatekeeper stat status and you can introduce this to the people who are actually going to be using it, they will start to agitate on your behalf. And now that gatekeeper is hearing it from two sides, at least two sides, right? From the people that want to use it and from you trying to sell it. And that's just then a, it's, it's a bit of a marathon effort to get that across the line. But I think it's just about being interested, wanting to develop trust and actually pitching your reputation against the fact that you can back the sale and that you'll be here for, for a good chunk of time. Um, and I think the quick, all of the, the quick sale, the white shoe sort of salespeople, um, that's a thing of yesteryear, right? Trust, trust is the thing. If you can engender that, you're in good shape. Phil, how important is it, do you think, to be recording 
the sorts of objections and the sorts of questions <laughs> that you hear from 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 potential customers, so that you and your 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 co-founders can can kind of design a sales funnel so that it's not just about dropping leads in at the top but like qualifying those leads and understanding what category of customer they are oh i mean critical and this is this is where when you have one person doing it that can get lost because they get quite focused on the next meeting and the next mm. call and the next thing right so having a system and like systems in sales and business development is where the win actually happens it's not in the product it's not actually in the marketing it's in the system of how you've understood the need and how you've adjusted to make that work so i think it's super important um if you don't have a crm system get one right if you if you're using spreadsheets find way to start really doesn't scale but the discipline in the system is you know we've just had a 30 minute meeting what are the bullet points i'm going to share with my team to make that work um, i've gotten the habit of, of recording looms for that so i can just speak into a thing and sort of show you know i got to this slide and it sort of stalled because of you know whatever and this is what we should talk about in the next sort of round table around what that what our sales and bd pipeline looks like mm -hmm. and it's just a discipline now you don't get it right all the time but if you do it 80 percent of the time at least that knowledge isn't getting lost back into the into the co-founding team and i think that becomes really interesting and if you are going to find somebody external to help you who's got that track record um just ask that that be part of their role so they've spent a day doing all the calls part of the delivery of that day is you know five bullet points or five insights from the call and in particular why they said no yeah, yeah. I, I think a, an in-person debrief is, um, is is a really helpful thing too. You know, I find that if if I have to explain it to my co-founder how the call went and what I learned, it's 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 I'm more likely to make more sense and I'm more likely to remember stuff than if at the end of the day I type down five bullet points. You know, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll miss a lot of valuable stuff. As soon as I can after the sales meeting, I'll sit down with one of the other members of the team and say, "This is this is what happened." Yes. So for people who are going through you know, or maybe just setting up a sales cycle. I heard you say CRM, you know, it, it is about capturing that data along the way. And it's funny because literally this morning we were all talking about baseball and stats and how... We weren't all. You were telling us. Okay, I was telling them about it. I'm obsessed with Moneyball. I'm a softball and baseball fan. And I really, I love looking for those outlier stats and getting really laser on what's actually working here. Like it's not your feeling about it. It is, you know, and you can have instincts about things, but ultimately we look at the numbers, we look at what's actually working and how do we double down on what's working? So mm -hmm. if, if we're looking at this entire process, like Phil, where do you spend the most time? Like, you know, along that process, like you've got the initial outreach and then you're having conversations with a customer. We know that it's multiple touch points along the way before you actually get to a point of a, a sale or a partnership. Where do we put the most time and attention? It's important to start at the right place, right? So the, the metric is actually um, the time to the first win for the person you're selling to, right? Which means it's not the sale. Okay. Right? So when, you, when you're thinking about what is it? And we call it the, the fast, the first fast win. So within sort of 60 days, 90 days post deal being signed, what is the thing that the person who is your sort of partner contact? So the, the salesperson or the person on the other side, what can they celebrate inside their organization so that they can be rewarded for the risk they took in bringing you in the first place? Yeah, that's right? good. So just imagine whatever that is, right? It could be you know, implementation of a system X or, you know, whatever, whatever the objection is, or sorry, the, uh, the outcome is. And then you work backwards from there because 
selling what you've got on a call sheet saying, here are the features, here's the benefits, here's the price, what do you think? It's like, well, sorry, no, that's not a transformation I'm good for because mm-hmm. now I'm just actually getting, I'm trying to rebut the sale. If I'm, it's very difficult once I understand the need and what I'm actually here to deliver for you, it's hard for you to rebut that unless you've got no budget or unless there's something that is sort of below the surface. So from our point of view, we always go, what's a transformation we can create for you? We have that debate. We discuss that a lot. It's a bit like defining the problem. What's the thing that we can really nail? That's often going to happen months after the deal is signed. And then we work backwards from there because that informs the people you've got to talk to, the kind of material you've got to create. Um, and it just sets you up for a much better celebration than the celebration being, hey, we signed a contract, fantastic. And then it's, oh, shit, now we've got to deliver the work. Yeah. <laughs> if you sort of move past that point, you've sort of got a stronger sense of what's what's actually the, the value is going to be. I love that you're talking about the value and the win that you create for the yeah, customer. Yeah. That's a very different conversation, right? Like often when yeah. we're in the company or if you're in the weeds with always be closing this, I mean, they literally said they're desperately chasing new business. It's yeah. so easy to be in the mindset of like, we need a win, we have to have a win, as opposed to what are we creating for this customer? How can we help them win? And we yep. are the solution to make that happen. Yeah. So you mentioned CRM a moment ago, customer relationship management, you know, and those things cost, you know, uh, some money f- per seat, you know, per they month can be free. for that customer. Airtable does can, good you, CRMs that you, you can, can create free. and use Zapier with. Yeah. But if, if, if you think about your own organization and choosing a CRM to, to, to use to, to track your sales processes, you know, what would be the time for the three of you at which you'd go, oh, Paying for this CRM was worth it because now blah 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 happens, right? So yeah. that's that's the kind of mindset we're describing here, right? Like you know, what's what's the point internally when we would realize that a CRM was helping us, and then applying that to your customers and what you're selling and what you're delivering. When is it really going to make you know a big difference for your customer and, and work towards that? That's great advice, Phil. Thank you. Um, I just like, let me just build on that a second. The time that you realize that your CRM is really valuable is when someone is sick. Yes, mm. the hit by a bus theory. Mm. Hit by a bus, you're out for a couple of weeks, you're on annual leave, you've gone away for a month, and then it's like, where's the email, where's the note, where's the spreadsheet, where's the thing, where are we up to? I don't want to look like an idiot because you asked me to follow up with them you know, halfway through your vacation. That's where it's really valuable. Okay, so I'm just putting myself in always be closings shoes right now. They're desperate. They're a little bit panicked. They're hearing all of this. They're like, we've got a CRM. Okay. It's not as fancy and we're not paying for it yet, but it's, you know, it's a basic spreadsheet, but we're, we're doing what we can. We've got all three of us going out there. We're talking to people. We're doing social media. We're having conversations. We're doing demos. How do we convert people? Like if we're looking at that pointy end where it's like, I've been talking to someone for six months or I've been talking to them for months. They've been playing with the product you know, we're having conversations and they're just not signing. What do you do? How do you shift that or, or convert people? It's too late for a Father's Day sale. We've missed that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. Um, look, I, I think there's maybe two two ideas here, right? The first one is to ask point blank, um, you know, we've been talking for a while. Are there any objections that we're not seeing that you can maybe help us understand why this is not working? And when people aren't asked those questions that you're not going to get an answer from them, right? So you may as well just ask that point blank question. That'd be my first filter because the assumptions around that can be usually quite grand and they can be um, pretty practical when you learn about them. You go, just if I had I've known that, we would have done X, right? So just get to that point and, and have, the, have the courage to ask the question. Um, the second one is 
to say, look, we will do a deal for you here just to get you started um, and make it make it a little bit radical, right, in, in the context of what you've been offering to date. There might have been a dollar figure, which is problematic. There might have been a term that was too long for them to consume. But there might also be a set of products that they have been using that you know they're using, some really standard ones, right, Microsoft products and others, um, where you can go back and look at the analog kind of terms that they would be offering or receiving at a school level and say, well, look, we know you're paying for this already. Let's do this deal in the first year, and then it can ramp up to um, to increase over time so that the value is known. Um, there's many different little dials to turn through the process, but I think it does start with asking, look, is there, is there true interest here? And if there is, what's the thing that's stopping you? Because we might be able to help. Mm. Um, and I think in a small team where there's three of you sitting around the table stressing out, like that stress just gets magnified through a funnel. And it, the antidote to that is just a point blank question to say, what, you know, why is it not working? Let's get super practical on this. Um, and sometimes it takes some fresh eyes. And that's why I suggested that business development person doing that one day a week or one day a fortnight sort of piece. It takes a fresh pair of eyes to go, actually, this is why they're saying, no, you're, you're missing this because you're so well drilled in your sales pitch that you're missing a point of language, a, a point in the cycle. They might have a every two year technology investment cycle that you didn't even know about. There could be these things that are known to industry veterans that you just haven't quite tapped yet. So that can be one of those things as well. It's really interesting, isn't it? That that stress um, and that fear of rejection. I can he- almost hear straight away people being like, yeah, I couldn't just point blank ask that. And it's like, yeah, you, you can and you yeah. should just yeah. ask. Like it's going to save you time. And it's it's one of those things. I know when we look at salespeople, often we think of that slick kind of real estate agent kind of, hey, hey kind of style person. <laughs> um, but all of the greatest salespeople I know are these quite relaxed, authentic, almost a little jokey sort of style people. Like, and there is that sort of relaxation about it. And maybe it is a bit of a front, like maybe that's just a a learned behaviour, but I don't think so. I think they've just gotten to a point where they're like, yeah, cool. You want to insult me? Like, yeah, you want to just tell me no? That's cool. I'll just go talk to this other guy. Like it is that sort of water off a duck's back kind of scenario, isn't it? That's it. That's it. And look, I, I never never feel as though you can't put the honest question to them, right? In any in any business development conversation, I don't want to waste your time and I'm sure you don't want to waste mine. You know, you've got a lot to do. We're here to help. If we can help, then here's what we think we can do. But tell us if you think it's a little bit different. And just never forget that, you know, fortune favours the follow-up, right? So just because you had a set of circumstances that, you know, in January and they said no, and now it's September the world has shifted. In, if, if anything, the world is shifting faster every single month and things are changing at a pace. So the gentle sort of follow-up is something which which has worked unexpectedly well for me many times before, where I thought, oh, they don't want to hear from me again. And they go, actually, it's really, I'm really glad you reached out. We were just talking about this last week. Can we catch up this, you know, today, this week, next week, whatever. Um, so just, you know, it's a journey. Not everyone's going to say yes to begin with. And in B2B, it does take time. So if that funnel is is getting filled at the top, then the stress should be lower as you find that, you know, you've got a 10% or 20% conversion rate. A 10% conversion rate of a really full funnel is great. A 10% conversion of a really skinny funnel is not great. So it's just about sort of going through that process and just being good for it. It takes time. You've got a little bit of time. And I know the tension is to tell investors, we've got this traction, we've got whatever else. But when you show investors the system around the sales process 
and the business development process that is a discipline those who have been involved in venture will go well actually now it's just a matter of time particularly when you've got the signals coming back saying you know this was the objection so of course corrected for that that worked now we're doing more of that what investors really hate is when people are standing still and hoping that the same widget and the same process they're using is going to continue is going to work when they had some really early success so it's just about trying to find a way to to demonstrate that and uh, usually it ends up working out pretty well you're listening to the advisory board with me, Megan Flamer. And me, Alan Jones. And we're talking with Phil Hayes St. Clair, who is a serial founder, a girl dad, an educator. He's also the host and creator of Partnership Plus. And he's talking to us today about partnerships. Our letter writer, Always Be Closing, is trying to figure out how to convert sales, really to keep their business going. Yeah. Phil, you were saying that the follow-up and especially the gentle follow-up is a good thing and you want to be nurturing that pipeline over time. Is it better to phone call? Is it better to email? Like how do you do these follow-ups? So I think it depends on how close you think the relationship is. There are some people that I text message follow-up on. Um, There are some people that I might use LinkedIn for and there are some, the, the vast majority is email. Um, But I think it's important in the follow-up, you know, when people know what you do and you've been clear about the value you're trying to provide, um, sometimes the follow-up doesn't need to be about the deal. So I'm a massive fan of determining when someone's birthday is and sending them happy birthday. Yeah. Because it's so uncommon for people to do that in a professional context that it's, look, I just just wanted to say happy birthday. I hope it's a great day for you and uh, talk soon. And they're really brief. And it's not overstepping and it's not personal. It's just something which is neat. Um, But there's also, um, you know, in one of the the courses that we have, it talks about a number of the acts that you can do to deepen trust in a partnership. And it's stuff that you guys do too, right? Like you might send a, a note to someone saying, look, I saw this event. I saw this content. I saw this white paper, thought it might be relevant to you. And you send it across and it's just about building building relevance because you're demonstrating that you're really interested in their success and their career and what they're up to. It's those kind of things that make having that conversation around. So love to circle back on the deal. Um, often that I'd love to circle back on the deal is a disconnected one. So it's not sort of a bait and switch where you've sort of gone, hey, look, I found this great white paper, this great event. Let's go and do that. And by the way, let's go and talk about that deal again. They're disconnected, right? They're separate things that I think are really important to um, just to build that relationship over time. Um, so that's how I kind of think about it. And I just try to be as authentic as I can around it. If if there's not going to be a relationship that I can see being built out over time, um, then that follow-up is a little bit less frequent. But, you know, as you, as you build out more of these, you start to get a sense about the kind of person you want to work with and the kind of person you want to pitch and, and, and develop a relationship with. So it's about that level of judgment. That's great. And so, Phil, tell us briefly about Partnership Plus. What are you doing and, and how does all of this work? Are you just smushing everything you know about partnerships into this? This is this is kind of what happened. So I've been building companies for 20, 20 years and a friend of mine only about six months ago said, you know, the, the stuff you know in partnerships needs to live in the world. And I thought, okay. So I built a, an email course that was basically the tactics I use. It's free and you can get it from my website. And it just went nuts and I didn't really expect it to go anywhere. So it was quite humbling to see people just receiving these emails, learning the tips and the tricks. And there's no rocket surgery here, but it is a system and it is a process that you need to sort of be aware of if you're trying to grow anything. Because I don't think I don't think the days are 
anymore where you can just do it by yourself, right? You've got to partner with other organizations to make that work. So um, so that was the case. And then um, I was encouraged to turn that into a podcast. So Partnerships Plus is really content and conversation around how people just do partnerships that were really unexpected. Um, and so we go back in history and look at those really magical partnerships that we look at now and sort of go, that's in folklore, but we often forget that they had to start somewhere. So, you know, we look at things like the Intel, the Intel Inside Partnership, um, how that became a massive thing for Intel. There were a couple of guys sitting around a table once said, I wonder if IBM would put a sticker on the laptops. And they went from a $500 million business to a $18 billion business, you know, 12 years later. It's all of these kind of little things that I, I find really fascinating. So Partnerships Plus is just about a place to, to learn as much as you can about unexpected partnerships. That's great. And it's... um. I, I can vouch for the fact that I've checked out some of these emails and I was like, oh, this CRM is actually looking better than what I've built myself. So thank you. And it's all free. So if you are starting this journey, um, I highly recommend checking that out and, and having a look at what Phil's putting out there and, and the podcast that's coming out with it as well. So we're very excited to, to hear more from you on all of that as well. Awesome. Thank you. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Great to see you guys. And you're doing great work here with this show. Yay. Thanks a lot. Yay us. Yay. Yay for partnerships. (laughs) That's Phil Hayes-St. Clair, amazing co-founder and CEO at Drop Bio Health and newly launched Partnership Plus, where they're pushing out podcasts and programs and helping people connect the dots to create, nurture and grow business partnerships. Always be closing. We really hope that that has helped you and that helps you build your partnerships and your business pipeline and hopefully close some stuff. Get going. Yeah, get going. Disrupt Radio. This is The Advisory Board with Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. Not that Alan Jones. Megan, have you ever had a coach or a mentor um, encourage you to uh, accelerate, to, to move faster, to work harder for a period of time? Yeah, I am a serial, <laughs> I'm a serial <laughs> coachee mm-hmm. and I'm also a serial coach. So I do a lot of coaching and mentoring and I pretty consistently will have a coach. And there, I've had coaches that I've worked with 10 years ago and then I've come back to and mm-hmm. I use mm-hmm. coaches for particular, you know, seasons of my life or I'm like working on a project and I'm like, I need a sounding board for this, mm. if not just to protect my friends and family from my <laughs> ruminations. <laughs> the crazy woman you become. Yeah, well, I think I just, I'm constantly thinking about things and I'm trying to figure them out and there's only so much mindfulness and meditation that one person can do, although yeah. I have some monks who would disagree with me. But, you know, for me to be effective in my life, I've found that working with a coach and the sounding board is so effective for me to get out of my own head, Mm. create clear actions Mm -hmm. and create accountability. Like it's really good for me in terms of like, what did I promise? What am I doing? What am I pushing out there in the world? What does that look like? It's also how I prioritize and and juggle things in my life as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can can journal things as much as I like. Yes. But if I'm the only person who reads that journal, if I'm the only person I'm accountable to for the goals that I set in it, I, I don't have the self-discipline. I need somebody else. I need a business partner. I need a co-founder. I need a yes. coach or a mentor. And yes. obviously those people that I'm paying for their time, you know, there's a little bit more uh, accountability in that. Skin in the know? game though yeah. as well, right? And I think, you know, we've coached and mentored and advised mm-hmm. hundreds, I suspect in your case, maybe thousands mm, of accelerator, yeah, accelerators and, and founders and 
you know, I really, having been someone who's been coached, you know, whether that's athletic coaching or, or otherwise, you really notice what works in terms of how tough to be, how soft yeah. to be, how kind to be, when to give them a cuddle, mm. when to bring out the stick. You a know. little bit of tough love. Yeah, a bit of tough love. Yeah. Like I think, I think it's, it's important to know yourself, you know, what helps you succeed. Because one of the things I've really noticed in the last few years in how I've worked with a coach, and especially when I've had a new coach, mm-hmm. where I can say to them, look, I respond really well to this, you know, I respond really well to kindness and gentleness, but also like time and a deadline is gravity. Mm-hmm. Like there's no deviation from that. It doesn't matter what your feelings or your thoughts or your tears are. Like mm-hmm. that's that's set in stone. But also don't yell at me because I do not respond well to yelling. Yeah. So how do we, you know, how do we navigate that? And are you the right coach for me, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I think that relationship's got to work, right? Yes. Yeah. So if if you're um, if you're working with one coach at a time and, and and it's not working for you, then it's it's you know it's time to change. <laughs> it's time to go somewhere else. And and you know if you can find a way, it can be great to be coached by a tribe. You know, to to join an organisation or a community where there are elders. You know, where there are people who are more experienced than you, and they all have a superpower. They all have a set of experiences that are different, and they can all add value to that. Yes. And I think knowing knowing yourself and what makes you succeed, how you'll be motivated or not motivated, I think is really great for looking at, um, you know, our letter writer today, mm. where we're really starting to look at, like, what is going to help grow your business? Is it the right move? You know, what are those elements that you could put into place that are really going to help you accelerate and, you know, shine and grow your business and take things to the next level. Because I think there are a lot of different ways that you can do that depending on what you want to achieve. So ultimately, I think you have to figure that out for yourself first and then go out there in the world and, you know, try out different methods of of getting there. Yeah, I think you know I've I've come to know myself better by working through coaches who've who've pointed out who I am in 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 yeah. some respects as well. You know, like I don't think I would understand myself as well if I hadn't had coaching to help me see those those parts of myself that are invisible most of the time. Yeah, I have a coach who described it to me as it's like having a post-it note on the back of your head, and my job is just to gently take the post-it note off and hold it in front of your face, oh. like it's looking at your blind spots, like it's really figuring out. What are you missing? Uh, I wonder what all those were on the back of your head. (laughs) I've colour-coded them. (laughs) So, Megan, we have a letter on this topic. Yeah. Um, Shall we hear about that? Yeah, I love this. I think this is a very common question. So, dear advisory board, we've been offered a place in a really well-respected local accelerator program, but when I ask other startup founders... They tell me accelerators are a waste of time and equity and that I don't need to do one. What should I do from left or right pedal? And I think left or right pedal is a play on accelerator and brake. Ah, that's good. I thought that was clever. We always nice reward one. and promote the letters that have the best from. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I love it. I think they're just getting better and better. Well, I've- like, I think it's it's easy to look at an accelerator program and say, oh, they're taking too much away. Mm. But when you look at most of Australia's biggest startup success stories, especially in the past five, six years, they have gone through at least one accelerator program. If yeah. you're coming in cold and you just don't understand it, if you're super early stage, if you are trying to scale up or ramp up, there are so many things that an accelerator program can do for you. 
Yeah, so you know, we should disclose uh, conflict of interest here. You, yes. know, you and I met working with accelerator programs, and yes. and uh, you and I have both been running accelerator programs and coaching and mentoring. You yes. know, I'm I'm still an active uh, investor and, and mentor in 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 the program that we're going to hear a little bit from in a moment. But uh, you know, I, I think. Uh, Australia's two biggest technology companies, so skeptics would tell us, you know, so Canva and, and Atlassian, uh, neither of them went through an accelerator program. And, and you know, my, my rebuttal to that would be, yeah, but when Atlassian and Canva started, there was no such thing yes. as an accelerator program. Yeah, they were pre those major programs. Yeah, so Australia's oldest programs are, are not much more than, than, you know, 10 or 12 years old. Um, and and that feels like forever for somebody who's been in startups for three or four years <laughs> and considers themselves a veteran, but yes. it's actually not, you know. So, yeah, we need we need to give time for uh, for some of those companies that have been through Accelerate programs and benefited from those to, to, to rise to the top, and they're certainly on their way, I think. Yes. And I think as we're looking at the possibilities around an accelerator program, being discerning and thinking about what your major blockers are yeah. in a company, right? Like, are you having blockers in your sales cycle, for example, or with getting customers, with reputation, with your marketing, with getting mentorship? I mean, one of the best things I feel in how we're involved with accelerator programs and startups as well is like, it, it runs a lot off the goodwill of mentors and advisors and people investing because they have a vested interest mm. in you succeeding as a business. Mm. And an accelerator program is a way to bring all of those things together so that there is that support, not just from one person, but from a suite of people who know what they're talking about. Yeah. So let's hear today from, from today's expert guest. Michael Backco studied business, moved into consulting, worked for American Express, PwC, Ooh. KPMG, all the big money places, where he was exposed to the startup industry and fell deeply in love with it. He grew the online pet startup Mad Paws from two to five people and then helped Expert 360 grow from 10 to 50 and raise a $13 million Series B round. Michael joined Startmate as head of operations originally and became its CEO in December 2019. And I think I can say as one of the Startmate mentors, I've never seen anybody work so hard for something that they love and care about. Startmate, I think, has since become widely recognized as a world-class accelerator program. Michael Backco, thank you so much for your time joining us today. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. So um, you, you know, were exposed to to accelerator programs while in in the corporate world, um, but now, you know, I see you in, in in Startmate. You know, most of the time, I see you out there in the ecosystem, approaching promising startups and approaching promising startup founders and and persuading them that that applying to Startmate would be a good idea for them. What sorts of um, objections or, or questions or, or issues that do founders raise with you when you tell them about Startmate? Oh, for sure. Um, I get all the questions. Um, are we too early? Are we too late? We already have customers. Why do we need it? Accelerator is expensive. Um, I already know all of the mentors. Why wouldn't they just go internationally? Oh, I've heard it all. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's break down some of the more common ones and, and some of your, your, your answers to that. So the first one, uh, accelerator programs are too expensive. Have, hmm. what, what does an accelerator program manager say in, in, uh, against that criticism? Yeah, for sure. So actually, um, I guess my first kind of piece of advice, um, actually on the back of this letter, by the way, is probably just the one of um, um, doing your due diligence um, just like you would on a VC as well. Like the best thing you can do is just talk to alumni who went through the accelerator program and see where they are now and if they're still engaging and what benefits they got from it. That's literally number one. And um, to your question of um, is an accelerator too expensive? 
it kind of depends on the accelerator. It totally depends on the, um, on the help they're going to give you. Mm-hmm. And that part of the due diligence of what is too expensive as well means really understand the terms of the accelerator itself. What are they investing? Are there any fees, hidden fees, charges and stuff? I'm personally a big, um, big, opponent of any kind of hidden charges there mm-hmm. and start made for example it's super clean it's one hundred twenty thousand dollars. it's at a one and a half mil post money valuation or we match your latest valuation we never take more than eight percent and it is super upfront there's um literally no hidden fees or clauses or anything like that it's a safe note or an equity round whatever you prefer and then um is it too expensive um, I get the question all the time. It's like, is it actually worth eight, um, eight percent? And the way I, um, always explain it is the one of, if we're going to add eight percent to, um, eight percent, um, difference to your business and make it eight percent better, it has already been worth it, especially in the early stages where we, it is literally trajectory changing. It's like, even if we change the trajectory that your business is on by a couple of percentage points so early on, it has such an outsized impact on the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I think that's so much of it, isn't it? It's like looking at what what could I shift or move or what do I really want? And I think that's the big question that left or right pedal should be asking before they apply to accelerator programs, right? It's like, what do I actually want to get out of doing this program? And as you're going in and asking questions, because I think, you know, in the interview process, you're interviewing each other, um, you know, what is it that, yes, the accelerator program could create for us, but what could we also create in this community and 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 create together? You know, michael, as you're as you're looking for founders, like is there a perfect stage or a perfect type of founder that you're looking for? Yeah, for sure. So like um that's probably like another almost piece of advice in there because uh, the question is almost should I do an accelerator? But I think the first question people should almost ask themselves of like, is this even what I want? In the sense of like, do I even want to take venture capital money? It's probably like the first question. And so many startups and founders actually should answer that question first. Am I on the VC path? Is that even the right path for me? Do I want to become a massive, massive startup? And um, and again, like different accelerators are different here. So also just important to actually align on like what is your your motivation? What is actually the, the goal of the accelerator itself? And what do I look for in founders is people actually on that VC path. So like if that is you, Startmate is the right place for you. And then you can kind of keep going with the conversation. What I look for is um, people who are custom obsessed, literally working on their life's mission, will run through walls to make the problem go away. I don't actually care about um, the, the product and how far along you are. Like if you are the right person solving the right problem, that is actually the most important thing. And then to your other question of like, what is the right stage? There's not necessarily a right stage. Like we invest literally pre product all the way up to maybe a million bucks in, in annual, uh, annual revenue. So it's quite wide. And if I was to define a kind of a sweet spot, it would be essentially you've just um, launched an MVP or version one and you are about to get your first first 10 customers kind of thing. That is actually when you really can take it to the next level and we can really accelerate the journey. How about um, you, you must meet founders for whom their their startup is not their full-time gig. You know, it's a side gig and, and maybe their co-founders is a side gig as well. Yep. 
Um, is, is, it, is it possible to, you know, get the value from an accelerator program if everybody in the team is just sort of doing the startup on the side? <laughs> yeah, great question. So like um, we've got a hard rule at StartMed where at least one founder has to be full-time on a business because uh-huh. we're essentially saying if we're committing to you, you have to be committed to the startup because this is going to be a hard journey and this is not a part-time job. Mm. Cool. Yeah. So it's it's um, they're called accelerators for a reason, right? Yeah. They're, they're not reevaluators. We're not here to crawl, guys. Yeah. There's yeah. going to be people who are going to push you when you're in an accelerator program, push you to to do things faster and and smarter than before. Thank you so much, Michael. Great advice. Michael Batko is a, a corporate refugee who fell in love with tech startups and accelerator programs. He's currently CEO of uh, Startmate, probably Australia's best known accelerator program. Really grateful to have you on the show today, mate. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Also, massive shout out to Michael and his supreme, supreme efficiency. I've done his course, Puddle Pod, and it's just one of those things, like if you're a nerd for like shortcuts and hacks and like figuring out how to organize yourself to the hilt so that you can be super hyper effective, big fan of that. So yeah, check that out as well if you're looking up Michael Batco. Thanks so much. Make sure you send us your questions or write to us about your problems. You can reach us at hello at disrupt.radio. You can find us on Instagram or on LinkedIn. This is Disrupt Radio. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Simon Reynolds. The Business Lounge. From humble beginnings and using very little initial startup capital, he has built one of the greatest travel companies in the world, Flight Centre. Graham Turner, welcome to the Business Lounge. Carolyn Creswell, co-founder of Carmen's Fine Foods, welcome to the Business Lounge. He started Seek with two friends at a time when there were virtually no successful Australian internet companies. Matt, great to have you here in the Business Lounge. Check in with business guru Simon Reynolds in the Business Lounge. Live on DAV+, online and on demand at disrupt.radio.